Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Hi, friends. Uh, It's been a little while since I've had the chance to talk to you, uh, and I wanted to actually address that first just quickly. Um, It's simply a function of the fact that uh, pandemic challenges, logistical challenges have caught up to me like so many people these days. Um, And so it's been difficult for me to find the opportunities for recording. But hopefully that will change um, in the upcoming days uh, at some point. And I will be back with you more often. But I want to thank Derek and Johanna for the tremendous work they are doing with the podcast. And I am in complete support of everything they are putting out there. So I just wanted to start with that. Um, Obviously, we're in sort of bizarre circumstances right now and that we've kind of become part of the stories that we're following. And, uh, you know, I want to start by, I guess, addressing it a little bit directly and then stepping back and talking in a broader sense about what brought us here, because I think that's what really matters. And I don't want to get too caught up in the sort of media spectacle of what's going on right now. But from that standpoint, I just want to say that... Quite frankly, um, I would have been perfectly comfortable to let this whole story rest um, after the exchanges on Twitter, because the point of that kind of back and forth is not to prove that one is right and to humiliate the other person. It shouldn't be. That's not really a particularly ethical way of proceeding in the world. The point of those exchanges, because they are public, and this is really the advantage of Twitter, this is the remarkable thing about Twitter, is that you can have these exchanges in public view and they become opportunities for other people um, to think about where they stand on these issues and to perhaps be exposed to ideas that they haven't really considered before. Um, I certainly never thought that Dan Dockich's mind would be changed on the subject of the exploitation of college athletes and his um, incredible career of complicity in that exploitation. Um, But, you know, the hope is that other people who are listening may find something of value in that conversation. And I I was willing to let that rest. Um, Even after understanding that he had used his platform on his radio show to um, disparage me you know, it is what it is, right? That's 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 what we've signed up for, so to speak, as they tell us about college athletes all the time. I, I have consented in some way to be um, mocked on um, Indiana radio stations. What changed was when I found out the really precise nature of what was said, um, because there is a line. Um, you know, mocking my appearance, um, it's not good. But I honestly, like, I can live with that. Uh, inflating my salary? Not crazy about it. Definitely a lie. Uh, but again, you know, I'll tweet about it. It's 
not the end of the world. But joking about sexual violence, that was clearly going too far. Um, And that's why, for me, it was necessary to push back on that and make it clear to people what had actually transpired in this case. Because I think that in that situation, if we stand by, then we are normalizing and tolerating a form of discourse that is actively harmful. And um, in that sense, we are submitting to a kind of bullying that, um, you know, is pervasive in American discourse and all sorts of different forms. But nonetheless, um, we need to push back against. Um, there's a there's a moral obligation to push back against it. And so that's why um, with Johanna, who um, is never afraid to push back against that kind of a, abusive and harmful language, um, I felt that that was necessary. So, you know, that's where I stand on on the larger question. That's why I pushed it over the weekend. Um, and quite frankly, that's why I was really moved by the support and solidarity of so many in our community, um, so many listeners and friends, um, those who are um, critical scholars of sport, as well as um, people critical of sport in the media, and, and just so many others who were such fervent defenders of right in this context. Um, It was very moving to me to see that. And I want to thank all of you for your actions because it really emboldens me as well when I see you having my back in that way. Um, So thank you for that, everybody. Um, I must say that I was also a bit discouraged to see how quiet some in the mainstream media were on the subject. there was terrific reporting about it by outlets like Awful Announcing, um, who really did a tr- terrific job of picking up the story and telling it in an accessible way that allowed people to see just the facts of the case, which is all that was necessary. Um, so I'm very grateful to them for that. But when it came to the mainstream media, um, I was disappointed to see very, very little comment beyond the circle of people who I expected comment from and who did not disappoint. Uh, And so that's clearly something that needs to change because that silence, although it's difficult for them because I understand that their own livelihoods are tied up in this and there's all kinds of net issues of social capital connected to speaking on this and who do you alienate in the process. uh, It's hard. I understand that. But clearly we're not at the point yet where um, those individuals are willing to put the principle ahead of their own pecuniary interest. Um, And that is disappointing. First, I I wanna say like obvious content warning for just, you know, whatever it is we're gonna talk about, just because it it is triggering and it's upsetting. And, you know, we're talking about feeling as if we're being violated and feel as if we're being doxxed. And so just sort of a general content warning to listeners um, that we're gonna be talking about that. Um, so, you know, it, it's been like a, a, a real, like roller coaster doesn't, doesn't really accurately describe what it's been just in the sense of, you know, it, it started on Tuesday night, I think, um, Tuesday night. And then, you know, we, we sort of went on, you know, had these heated disagreements on Twitter and then, you know, we knew that he had gone to his, um, um, talk show, uh, his radio show, and then things seemed to sort of die down. Um, and so I, I don't know, I personally was feeling more or less like, Oh, okay. That was, you know, a, um, that was a long week. 
you know? Um, but that, I figured that was kind of it. And then I know for me, like I woke up on Saturday morning and kind of saw that the first uh, piece uh, come out. And then that really like alerted at least me to, to what had actually happened, what had actually been said on that radio piece. Um, so, you know, just like high, high, you know, low lows, but also high highs in the sense of, I know I, I personally feel like very supported, obviously within the podcast and our friends um, academically, you know, in the sports journalism world, um, you know, personal families, my, my department, my colleague, I just feel like layers and layers of support. So that's been a real bright spot out of all this. You know, it started as this initial, um, from what I remember, an initial thread from, from Nathan, um, in, in response to seeing, and we have been talking about this amongst ourselves and we've been tweeting about this for a while. We were seeing, um, sports journalists, um, I think predominantly white sports journalists um, critiquing um, players such as Jalen Johnson and other players um, for the decisions that they had made regarding their careers um, academically, but also within the NCAA for their for their schools and whether to continue opt out or go pro. Um, and, and as like a spectrum of, of decisions they were making and, and these sports journalists who were critiquing them mercilessly, just going at them, um, and not at all taking into account, you know, the, 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 the exploitation that the, uh, these athletes are going under the racialized exploitation that, um, black athletes and, and brown athletes undergo. And so, you know, we were using all of our work on the podcast, our research, our teaching, our, our discussions with our colleagues and our communities, academic communities, collective works to say, you know, these men are being exploited. Therefore, like, you know, bravo to them for making whatever choices make sense for them and their families and their lives. And, and pointing out to the fact that these journalists are making Boku bucks, they're making careers off of critiquing these men. Um, that is what they are, you know, making their wealth off of. And, and that's hugely problematic. And that's something that isn't talked about enough. But it wasn't about any of us at the beginning. It was a story actually about Jalen Johnson, a basketball player at Duke University, who decided not to continue with this pandemic season. It doesn't really matter why he decided not to continue with the season. He chose not to go on playing basketball without pay, during a pandemic. His own coach in December spoke quite publicly about how concerned he was to be playing basketball during a pandemic. The coach of the women's team at the same school, Duke University, went so far as to put her money where her mouth was and cancel the season for the Duke women's basketball team because it wasn't appropriate to her to be playing basketball during a pandemic. And I absolutely laud Duke women's basketball for that choice. Well, this basketball player on Duke men's basketball decided to stop playing. The response in the mainstream media was absolutely appalling and also so telling, so representative, and so unsurprising. John Rothstein at CBS practically screamed into his Twitter feed that Jalen Johnson was quitting. He was a quitter. And that became the rallying cry of folks like Seth Davis, Doug Gottlieb, even to a certain extent, John um, Goodman. You know, the, 
what I might call the usual suspects in the men's college basketball media who are quick to jump on a bandwagon, punching down on a college basketball player if it boosts their own position, their own status, and defends really the status quo interests of the um, college sports industrial complex. That's what we saw. And every single time Duke has played since Jalen Johnson left the team, some version of these individuals would jump back in and point out how much better Duke is without him. Now, of course, the way people want to take up this conversation is they want to say, well, he was a quitter. He was a quitter. It's proven that he was a quitter because now he's left school. They want to say, look, Duke is better without him. They're winning games. It's just the facts. I want to be clear about this. The point is not whether he quit a bad job. The point is not whether the team is having more success without him. The point is not whether the team even does have more chemistry without him. And it is even, even if it were a direct consequence of his subtraction from the team, that the team is more successful. Even if that were the case, I'm certainly not willing to grant that, but let's just imagine that was the case. It doesn't actually matter because powerful members of the mainstream sports media don't have to publicly call out a college student by name and attempt to humiliate them in order to boost their own stature and status to build their own clout. They don't have to do it. And the fact that they do shows a complete lack of self-awareness about how they are directly benefiting from the exploitation of that athlete. It is as if they came into my classroom and tried to humiliate one of my students because, let's say, they wanted to drop my course because of personal reasons. And they decided they had to publicly humiliate that student in front of an entire country. That's what we're talking about here. And that's what makes me sick. And that's why I decided to directly confront people who were doing exactly that. That is what this story is all about. Um, so that was sort of, that was our main critique from the beginning. And then essentially there was back and forth between a uh, major name in, um, who, who was employed by ESPN, who um, is a talk show radio host, um, and, and essentially just, you know, heated disagreements back and forth about, you know, whether athletes are being exploited, whether they're not. And, you know, listeners already know we firmly believe they're being exploited. There's no question in our minds about that. Now, it broadened from there in an utterly incomprehensible manner. Tried to sort of expand the issue and deflect from the issue by raising all kinds of other elements of the college sport exploitation conversation. There's a lot of talk, and we've talked at length, about the economic exploitation of college athletes, especially what we're talking about here are power five players in the revenue sports. I'm not going to go on and on about it, but the bottom line is I don't even care about name, image, and likeness. That's not what I'm talking about. These universities are earning massive amounts of revenue. Some of these athletic departments are earning $200 million a year. Okay, at Union University of Texas. 
They're earning up to $200 million a year off of the labor of their athletes. And those athletes are not being paid. They're being paid indirectly through facilities, which not one of them would care to take versus an actual paycheck. And other people are being paid. The coaches, the university presidents, the athletic department officials, they're getting actual paychecks that wouldn't exist if it weren't for the labor of these athletes. That is why it's bare exploitation and save the talk about education as compensation. He went off the rails because I dared to say that the education that these athletes receive as their so-called compensation is suboptimal, a less than optimal education. That was me at my absolute most tactful and generous. Let's be clear. Because there's absolutely no universe in which the education college athletes receive is the equivalent education to the education that other college students receive. Why? Well, let's start with the fact that if you're going to prioritize practice over any other aspect of a college athlete's experience, then that means that there are a lot of classes that those athletes can't sign up for. That's a structural impediment to them getting the full array of educational opportunities. What else? There's something called academic clustering. That's a practice when coaches and other athletic department officials steer players towards classes they feel are going to be easier for the athletes, less demanding of their time, less demanding of their energy, so they have more time and energy to devote to their athletic activities. Academic clustering happens across this country. It typically steers students away from STEM classes, which are perceived to be more onerous. And now I will push back on aspects of that claim because I think there's tremendous value in a lot of the classes that are disparaged for being easier classes that athletes might be steered towards. I certainly think that that's a mistake. There is no question that the mentality amongst athletic department officials across the country is that they are putting students in easier classes. And there is no question that they are doing that because those classes are easier in their eyes. That's the reason because they have those athletes on campus in their view to do the sport thing and the school thing comes second. In fact, coaches often have bonuses written into their contract for the academic performance of their student, of their athletes, I should say. And those benefits push them again to ask those athletes to take easier courses precisely so they can directly compensate. They can directly benefit in terms of their own compensation from that. And there's more. What about the fact that these athletes are doing their schoolwork on the road much of the time in season? What about the fact that they're missing classes because they're traveling for games? What about the fact that they're getting back on campus at 2 or 3 a.m. after a cross-country flight and having a presentation at 9 a.m. the next morning in class? Does that sound like a good education to you? I think it's probably fair to call that a little bit less than optimal. And one of the big perks of these institutions, the institutions that people constantly want to tell us, like Duke, 
that have $70,000 tuition. So they're getting $70,000 worth of compensation a year. Well, you know what Duke students and other students are paying for? They're paying for year, year abroad programs or semester abroad programs. They're paying for incredible summer opportunities in various parts of the world. They're paying for internships on Wall Street and Silicon Valley. It's all built into that tuition. That's how it works. But guess what? The college athletes don't get to do that part of it. They don't get that college experience. You know why? Because they're doing their sports thing. And let me add this final note, because this one doesn't even show up in any metrics. When you work 40 plus hours a week at football, the way you, if you are a human being, feel is tired, really tired, tired in your bones, tired so you can't keep your eyes open even if you want to. That's what college athletes feel like when they're in the classroom. That's not their fault. That's the fault of an exploitative system that extracts every single ounce of energy and effort and value it can from their bodies before telling them, okay, go to class now, do your work. That's how we pay you. So it started off that way. And then as more of us started chiming in on this discussion, um, I don't really remember how, but the discussion just got really ugly really fast. Um, and for example, um, a colleague had tweeted out about how, you know, athletes, for example, are not allowed to pursue. Uh, they're, they're not getting the education that they should be getting. And, 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 and the, the, the sports journalist figure, sports talk person, um, said that hit this, that our friends' comments were sexist and racist. And so that, from what I remember, that was when I dove in. And I'm like, you know, this is, this is a fundamental misunderstanding of, of, of what's going on here. And then in turn, like my tweets were quote tweeted and it's in this person said again, that I was being sexist and racist. Um, and he kept making remarks about, um, they were a little bit hard to decipher at times about, you know, this person only understands what athletes go through and the benefits they get because he's been in the arena and there was lots of language that I wasn't totally, totally following. Um, and I mentioned at what point, you know, like I was a D1 swimmer. I've been in the quote unquote arena. I've been in the pool. Um, and there was one tweet in particular where I listed like, these are some of the workouts that I did as a swimmer, kept talking about the arena. I said, let's level the playing field. And like, let's, and I said, let's go at it in, in the pool, meaning, you know, me as someone who's an athlete or someone was a coach for many years who cares very deeply about athlete and sport welfare. My meaning behind that was that we would race. And it was, it was totally, I don't even think there was a question in anyone's minds that I meant race. Um, and, and, and essentially, so that conversation happened and then it, you know, I blocked this person because the, the conversation was not being productive and I felt like I was being harassed. So I blocked him. Um, and then it, it more or less seemed to die down. We knew he had gone to his radio show and said some things about us. One or two friends had reached out and said that he said some things about us. Um, and then, and then things seemed to die down. And then from there, that's when we essentially woke up on Saturday morning and essentially got like the, the, the transcript of what was said about us on, on that radio show. Now, for those of you who may be unaware, this transcription was first reported by Ian Kennedy of the Chatham Kent Sports Network, um, who wrote 
this sports reporter used this tremendous on-air platform to call Coleman Lamb, referring to Nathan, as a, quote, D-bag and insult his appearance. Some might say he went as far as doxing Coleman Lamb by physically spelling out his name to listeners and repeatedly discussing his office hours in a hostile manner. When it came to Dr. Mellis, who this sports reporter simply referred to as, quote, some lady who was, quote, B-wording at him, the sports reporter continued his tirade by discussing, quote, going at it in a pool with Dr. Mellis, saying that if he did, because it was a public space, he'd have to, quote, get divorced. We were not only made to feel as if we, we were not capable of critiquing um, the experience of college athletes because we were not, quote, we had never, quote, unquote, been in the arena, whatever that means. Um, which, as I said, is, is patently false. Not that it, and it actually doesn't even matter whether we've been an athlete in the arena, because whether you've been an athlete or not, you can still be trained and educated enough to make, you know, to make an evidence-based argument about exploitation. That's not, you know, beyond the realm of whether you're an athlete or not. And that, I mean, first off, beyond not totally, at first, not totally understanding what he meant, but then really thinking it through, it was clear that I was made to feel as if, quote unquote, going out in the pool would be about of some kind of physical sexual violence. Um, and so I felt, and I still feel that it, it, I feel as if it was an attempt to, um, violate me based on my gender, um, and do it in, like I said, a, it felt as if it was an incident of sexual violence that was being, you know, spewed over the air for all of his listeners. I mean, I don't know how many listeners he has, but on Twitter, he had 158,000 followers. So I assume that his listener base is, is pretty, it's pretty large. Um, and, and so, you know, to have that said about me over the air, um, and know, you know, that there were countless people that were listening and probably just like nodding their heads along, um, just thinking that that's okay and, and not questioning that. Um, so, you know, that was just a total shock. And I, as I said, on Twitter, I was told like shaking when I saw that and shaking as I'm, you know, explaining to my partner what's going on and shaking as I'm writing emails to you know, my deans and my department chair and our communications people, and, you know, at the college. And, you know, th th that's the thing is that when you're victimized like this, you have to be the one to reach out and advocate for yourself. And like I said, I feel extremely lucky that, you know, that we have such an amazing community of support that's just grown since, you know, since last week and since Saturday morning, that has just been amazing, but it still is incumbent on me to reach out to all these people and to, to tell them what's going on, because it's not as if it, ha you know, how would they know? Um, and this is not, you know, this is not to put any blame on them, but, you know, just like in any kind of incidents of victimization, the victim has to, has to be the one to do something about it. So just the countless hours of just thinking about it, articulating it, figuring out what it meant, figuring out the implications and contacting all these people to essentially establish like a, a, a circle of protection. I mean, you know, it's just all this time and energy and stress. And it's not just me, it's me, it's my partner, it's my family, it's my friends, right? Like the ripple effect. It's not just me. Um, and, and, and then not to mention that, you know, backlash since, I mean, you know, it has been picked up by several, you know, major news outlets at this point, which has been great. But of course, the more media attention that's brought to it, the more news spreads, but the more attention, you know, positive and negative that it brings. And um, for example, last night I got a, a DM 
I, I, I hadn't closed my DMs off because that's how people contact me to share information. And, you know, I've gotten like research contacts. I've made new friends through that. I've gotten contacts through the end of sport. Like, you know, that's been a really great thing for, for me and, and my career, but I had to close them off because I got a, a DM that called, that used the B word, which this guy used against us, against me and enveloped within these conversations were critiques about higher ed and sort of whether, whether we are adequate professors, um, which also struck a nerve for very obvious reasons, because all three of us care about pedagogy and care about our students so much. I mean, like I can't even describe to listeners how much we talk about pedagogy, how much we care about our students, how much we care about college athletes and in helping them succeed in the classroom. Um, that is something that is absolutely fundamental to the three of us in terms of who we are as academics, as human beings, as um, um, as in public intellectuals. Um, so, so the, the the kind of inclusion of the co- uh, feelings of of our academic um, and and teaching abilities um, really really struck a nerve, and 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 those continued within the radio show. You know, I feel traumatized because of this. Um, and, and not to mention, you know, for me personally, I don't know, um, I don't know how Nathan feels about this, but to me, this incident of feeling as if I'm being sexually harassed, this adds on to all of the prior incidents of sexual harassment that I've received through sports. Like, you know, it's just like yet again, another incident. So to me, it, it, you know, it's just connected to many, many, many different levels here. Well, listen, the college sports media has a part to play in this. That's the exploitative system. So what's their role? I think they get a free pass. That's me. I think we talk a lot about how athletic departments exploit them. I don't think we talk nearly enough about how the college sports media exploits them. Part of it is sports media and part part of it is the sort of nature of our sport culture as Americans. And, and I would say in the West broadly, but like, you know, we're focusing on the U.S. here, but right, this idea that, that, that participating in sports is what makes you a tough person, a tough manly person, right? Someone who, you know, knows how to like obey and work hard and set goals and be a team player, right? It's part of all of these traits that we've talked about in the podcast, which is fundamentally linked to all the things that the capitalist system wants us to be. And then also, you know, if you, this whole mentality, which is just awful, as you said, and really harmful, that being sports is what teaches people to be tough. And that if you can't hack it, quote unquote, if you can't hack it, get out of the arena, like we don't want you. Because every single person involved in the dissemination for profit of the commodity spectacle of college sport benefits directly from the labor of campus athletic workers. Yeah, of course, that means the media corp executives. But we're also talking about the television broadcasters, the scribes, and the commentariat. If we want to pay attention to the ethics of media work, we have to pay attention to that fact. Because college sport is unusual. It's an unusual site of labor in this sense when it comes to this commodity spectacle of media. Most people who are producing the value in media work are in some way getting compensated for it, whether they're doing the reporting and getting poured, report, paid for the reporting they're doing, whether they're writing a television series or acting in a television series or producing or directing a television series, they are doing the work and they're getting compensated in some way for it. 
If it's professional sport, the people producing the commodity spectacle that is sold, they're getting paid handsomely in many, but not all cases, for it. But in college sport, the media commodity spectacle is entirely predicated. There would be nothing to put on the air, in other words. There'd be nothing to write about without those people that work. Those workers don't get paid for it. That's unusual in the media universe, and it places a different kind of ethical obligation on members of the college sports media. Because it means that their work is entirely grounded in the exploitative work of another. Now, let's look a little bit at what kind of revenue that generates. In 2019-2020, the ESPN networks earned $793 million of ad revenue from college football. Just ESPN there and its networks. Fox took in $165 million. CBS took in $151 million. In college basketball, and I'm not even talking about the regular season, just March Madness earned Turner and CBS $655 million for men's college basketball. This is the money that pays the paychecks for the people in college sports media. That's money that could be going to the athletes in some way, should be, but it's not. It's going to the college sports media and it's going to the people who write about and talk about the players. Sports harm people. They cause a lot of drama, which again, this example, this incident is an incident of trauma. Now listen, the responsibility is not equally borne by all media members in this case. Some have infinitely higher paying jobs and way more prominent platforms than others. And that matters. Further, there are absolutely wonderful people in the college sports media who use their platforms to highlight the exploitative dynamics of the system and who never choose to punch down on athletes. Even if they're not as outspoken as someone like I am, who call it exploitation at every turn and antagonize people by calling it unpaid labor, they are doing good and valuable and moral work. I am not directing this at those people. There is a way to be within capitalism, which we all are, and still struggle against it. And we cannot hold all people who struggle within capitalism accountable for the harms of capitalism. It's a structural problem. What was said about us was not warranted. You know, like some people will say, you know, oh, when you're talking about this topic or when you're doing that, like you're asking for it. Like, no, we are not, right? Being a public intellectual does not mean that you're asking for criticism, right? It means that you are communicating your knowledge to the public and having a conversation with the public. There's a huge difference between having a conversation, even a heated argument on Twitter, and and the escalation that occurred when things were said about us on the radio. We didn't ask for this. None of this is warranted. 
Um, and obviously this is vile and none of it's acceptable, but just to say that, um, you know, that's been a, a very common refrain of sort of like, what did you expect? Um, this was not what I expected because this isn't behavior that's warranted. I mean, in any, in any kind of workplace, this is not behavior that would be warranted at all. Um, and you know, and I, and I, and I, and I can only speak to myself here, but I'm sure that Derek, you feel the same and that Nathan feel the same when it comes to like our teaching, the, the amount of effort that we spend on ensuring that our classrooms are in a welcoming and inclusive environment is like at the top of our lists. Um, it's something that we care deeply about. And this behavior that, you know, the, the sentiments that were directed at us go in the exact opposite direction, right? The most basic ethical responsibility of the college sports media members to the players that they derive so much benefit from is to never under any circumstances add to the harm and exploitation players are subjected to as a condition of their labor. And I have to say that the vast majority of college sport media members fail this very simple ethical test constantly by either actively defending the system itself, the system I tried to describe briefly, or by publicly maligning and humiliating these unpaid players. You know, there's a real, there, there are not enough people that know how to analyze sport critically. Like that's just, an, you know, it, it's, it's not that it's a vacuum because there are those of us who do it and those of us who do it really well, but there's not enough of it. And we're not teaching our athletes to, to question what coaches are telling them. They're not, they're not their best advocates um, because they're, they're, they're told that if they advocate for themselves, that a lot of nasty things will happen that I'm not going to talk about. So, and this goes back to the fundamental issue we were talking about on Twitter, the Elon Johnson thing, like that's the thing is that we're taught that athletes should shut up a play and it's not just athletes, right? It's, it's cultural figures in other realms too, right? Just, just do your cultural thing, keep your mouth shut and entertain us. This whole thing again, has been a distraction away from this fundamental issue that, 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 that you know, started the, the Twitter argument or whatever you want to say about college athletes being fundamentally exploited, right? Like that is the issue. And so this is all a way to move, to distract us, to move away from the core issue. We need to stop tolerating the exploitative tendencies of the college sport media. They have a responsibility to the vulnerable athletes they cover, and they need to be held accountable for it. We need to call it when we see it. We need to push back. And it's unpleasant because the trolls are unpleasant. But it needs to be done because it's time to tear down this unbelievably exploitative system.